This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast. Yeah, I know how you're feeling. Blue Jays out. Another shutout. What happened to the Blue Jays team that was clubbing the ball all over the field in the last series against Texas? They couldn't stop hitting. I don't know. I don't know. I'm telling you, I know people listening today, there are some of you who couldn't care less about the Blue Jays, and there's others of you who are just beside yourselves now. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you something. Everybody tomorrow and tonight and for the rest of this week and for however long is going to be talking about how great Cleveland's pitching was in this series. Cleveland's pitching. They lost a bunch of their starting pitchers. They replaced them with backup guys. Everyone's going to be talking about how fantastic Cleveland's pitching was in this series. Don't believe it. Because it's not true. It's not true. Now, they didn't give up a lot of runs. And if simple statistics indicate proof of performance, then yes, they were fantastic. But don't believe it when they start telling you about how great Cleveland's pitching was. They had one great pitcher, Andrew Miller, the reliever who came in, pitched a couple innings today. He was fantastic. No question. But the reason Cleveland's pitchers look so great is because the Blue Jays' batters are so incredibly stubborn and refused to hit the pitches that Cleveland's pitchers were giving them. There were pitches to hit. You understand there is a strike zone. You have to throw the ball to within that strike zone or it's walk, 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 walk. So they are throwing the ball in an area somewhere where the ball can be struck with the bat. That is baseball. And what the Blue Jays did is rather than say, okay, we're mostly right-handed batters and we've got power, so they are going to throw the ball to the far side of the plate against us so we can't get our power swings going here. Because that's what Cleveland was doing in almost every game, but almost every batter. In every game, pardon me, but to almost every batter. Rather than being wise baseball gurus that the Blue Jays' professional hitters are supposed to be, guys who are being paid tens of millions of dollars because of their hitting acumen, rather than going up to the plate and saying, all right, if they are not going to throw me the pitch that I like, I can't force them to do that. So what I'm going to do is hit the pitch that they give me in a way that I can hit it. In other words, if you are, if they are throwing the ball away from you, it's very difficult to hit it to your power side. Do I mean, if you're if you're confused on this, picture the home run that Edwin Encarnacion hit to win the wild card game. He's a right-handed batter, so his power stroke is to left field. But they keep the ball away, so you can't hit that ball. You can't get your bat around it. So what do the smart players do? They hit the ball that you are presented with. You go the other way. If you're a power hitter, right-handed hitter, you go to right field instead. And eventually... You do that a few times, the other team, the pitchers, are going to adjust. They're going to say, wait, that's not working anymore. And look who in this series, look who did that. You saw Josh Donaldson do it. Pretty good series. Ezekiel Carrera did it. Pretty good series. They were willing to go the other way. Everybody else, they all wanted to hit a home run. And what happens? In the bottom of the eighth inning, when you need to get base runners, 
You have Darwin Barney flying out to left field with a home run type swing. It's just, if you're a Blue Jays fan, it's got to be just driving you out of your tree to be watching this stuff game after game after game in this series. Because if they're going to pitch you inside, drive it. Go nuts. Hit home runs. Do what you did against Texas. Texas pitchers made a ton of mistakes. But if they're not going to do that, you've got to adjust. You can't force them to your way of thinking. The ball is in the pitcher's hand. He dictates where the play is going to go. But you have to adjust. Michael Saunders is another guy in this series who went the other way. Three guys who were the successful hitters for the Blue Jays. Saunders, Carrera, Donaldson, and all of them went the other way. Everybody else wanted to pull the ball. So don't, tomorrow when you're at the office, tonight when you're out, and people are talking about, oh man, Cleveland's pitching was outstanding. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was It was okay. They executed what they wanted to do, but it wasn't unhittable pitching. The Blue Jays just refused to take what was given to them. And what is possibly, in a way, just saved... Now, everyone wanted the Blue Jays to go to the World Series. I get that. But if they had got to the World Series, and if, as it's starting to look like, the Dodgers might get there, the Dodgers are expert at this. The Dodgers are great at this, too. Just keep the ball away. Clayton Kershaw is the best pitcher in baseball. If the Jays had found a way to get through, they would have had this all through that series as well, and we would have been pulling out our hair about that. So, kudos to the Cleveland Indians. I can't explain to you, even though I like to think of myself as someone reasonably knowledgeable in sports, I can't explain to you what exactly the hitting coach was doing in this series. Brooke Jacoby, a former Indian guy, by the way. Because that would seem to be, if you are a coach, that would seem to be something that you would be driving into these guys' heads. But maybe when you've got guys making $20 million, $25 million bucks a year, they're not willing to listen because they've made their big money by hitting home runs as opposed to slashing singles. I don't know. I don't know. The downside is, the really disappointing side for Blue Jays fans is, A, the Blue Jays have now been to the playoffs eight times in their career. They've made it to the World Series only twice. They won both those two World Series, but they've only been there twice. It's been a lot of teasing and tantalizing for Blue Jays fans. But the other part of this is, boy, was this ever an opportunity. If they could have adjusted, they had the pitching to win a World Series. They had the defense to win a World Series. If they could have adjusted with their hitting, they had the offense. They had the bats to win a World Series. Chicago looks like they're in trouble. Chicago is really the only team in the major leagues that when everybody equally is going at their best, when every team is, is clicking, Chicago is the one team that probably beats the Blue Jays. But the Jays will not find that out. So anyway, the funeral dirge that we brought you into the show with tonight was representative, I'm sure, of what a lot of people are thinking. But just as I say, it's not Cleveland. Cleveland I think Cleveland is going to find when they get to the World Series. I think you're going to find that if the other team, whichever other team gets there, is willing to be less stubborn and not look to be the hero every time up, I think you will find that they will have a lot of success against Cleveland's pitching. Because, And you say, well, what about Boston? Boston last series did the exact same thing as the Blue Jays. They play in Fenway Park. Let's hit home runs. Well, it didn't work. There you go. You can pick it up from there and discuss among yourselves. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. News today 
a report today, an announcement today, that the city of Hamilton has lost its court fight. You probably heard about this earlier in the day. I'm assuming that Scott or Bill was talking about this, but lost its court fight to stop the super mailboxes all over the city of Hamilton. Did you hear about this today? That the courts ruled against the city and said, no, no, it's Canada Post can go ahead and continue doing what they're doing and uh, continue putting up super mailboxes because it's, you know, that's what they do. And I'll tell you, I am, um, I'm trying to figure out whether I, whether I agree with this or not. I'll be honest with you. I, I, my initial thought is I got no problem with this. That's my initial thought. I don't know what you're thinking about this, but my initial thought is, well, who cares? We don't need to have, they've already said they're not going to be doing door to door service with mail. So what's the problem? You put up super mailboxes. We don't need to have some people getting door-to-door service and other people not, considering you're paying the same amount of money for a stamp and for your postal service and on your taxes and everything else. We don't. So if some people aren't going to get it, nobody gets it. Put up the super mailboxes, away we go. But here's the problem I have. That, that was my initial thought, because I do believe that. I think that as a rule, Canada Post is becoming an antiquated entity. And if we're not going to be delivering to some people... Don't deliver to anybody. Save more money. But here's the problem. Here's, after I had that thought, the next pro, the next thought I had, though, is the difficult part for me. I would prefer it if our city had more autonomy. Now, you're going to argue, well, our city councillors, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the, we, the city councillors get dumped on all the time, fairly or unfairly. But I I have a huge problem when you start having higher and higher levels of government dictating how different cities should be doing things. Because the federal government is not on the ground here. The provincial government is not on the ground here. Municipal politicians, municipal politics is supposed to be the people's closest reaching level of politics because they are here. They live in this community. We have wards because we can then presumably have the people, the politicians hear from the people. Do they always follow the people's whims and and wishes? No. But, but that's still the concept is that you have local politics because it's the things that really matter and you get to have a say in your city. And so when you start having federal national boards that are able to say, you know what, we want to put a super mailbox there. And it's suddenly in a place that is really inconsiderate or aesthetically not pleasing or in the way of traffic or blocking someone's view or on someone's lawn. Does the fed, does the federal government or not even the federal government do federal bodies like Canada Post? Do you think they give two wits about whether or not you care that there's a super mailbox suddenly plopped on your lawn or blocking your view when you back your car? No, they don't care. This is the part about this that I don't like. I'm I'm I have no issue with super mailboxes as a rule. But I get really concerned when we start having more and more and more stuff downloaded and dictated to us from higher levels of government that really it makes no difference to them. It's whatever is easiest. And so we lose the the court case today. Well, the city of Hamilton lost the court case. I don't know whether you'd consider yourself you lost it because maybe you were in favor of it. 
Here's the the judge's ruling said the power of the Postmaster General and its successor, Canada Post, to locate mail receptacles in its national network free of interference has existed from Confederation and has been continually exercised. Well, that that's the judge's ruling. And yeah, you know, that's correct. Although the world has changed. We didn't used to have super mailboxes. We had mailboxes that were on street corners in downtown areas that were not really in the way of anything. They didn't land on people's property or, or close enough to people's property to affect it. It just seems to me that we have a lot of things that are being filtered down, trickled down, and that the cities have less and less control. And, and once again, you may argue that you don't want the cities to have control because you don't trust that the city politicians, whether it's here or somewhere else, are capable of doing it. That's, that's, that's a moment thing. That's a problem that you have now because that's this city council. If you don't like this city council, you can say, well, I don't like, I don't want them to have control, but you know what? There will be another city council and there will be another one and there will be another one. And every time you hand over more power to some higher level of government or national board or national agency that doesn't really have any feet on the ground in a real way in this city, you're giving away control over your city. You're giving away part of your, your municipal feel. You're giving away a chance to control things here in town. And I, I that, that, that bothered me. I, I hate the idea that so much stuff seems to now be, and, and more and more, because remember one thing, there's one absolute unequivocal rule of government. Any power that government takes is never released. You never have a government of any stripe give up power. So if a government or an agency is able to get a little more power, a little more control, down the road, five years from now, no one's ever going to say, you know what, that was then. We don't need that kind of control. Now we're going to give that back to the cities. You know what the only time is that that goes back to cities or to someone lower? If it's exceedingly costly and they can dump the cost onto the people lower, but as far as the power, never. I just, I don't like the idea that more and more and more expressions of power and expressions of control and things are being told to the cities of how they should behave and what they should do. But there you go. So we now, who knows, maybe a super mailbox will appear on your lawn next or very close to you. That won't be on your lawn. You own your property, but near your property. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I don't think that in the two years plus that I've done this show now, I've ever done this before. Because my next guest was on last night as a guest, and I wasn't going to impose upon him again this quickly. But then all of a sudden, the world erupts, at least the world that, you know, he inhabits, sort of erupts. And so Rick Zamperin, man, we, we had to have Rick Zamperin from CHML Sports Director back because the CFL, Rick, it uh, doesn't cooperate. It's like turning back the clock. There's there's really no respite for the wicked. But uh, I'm here and uh, I'm excited to talk about this uh, enthralling story in more ways than one. Okay, so uh, betwe- give me a round number, just a guess, because I know it's got to be a reasonably high number. How many times in your life have you taken methylene dioxyamphetamine? You know, I thought about it from time to time. No. <laughs> uh, zero would be the answer, yes. I think that, well, I, now, I would assume or at least hope that for most people that would be um, the answer. By the way, for those who don't know what we're talking about, 
Hamilton Tiger Cats kick returner and receiver Brandon Banks today was suspended two games for a positive drug test for this drug, methylindioxyamphetamine, which is a psychedelic hallucinogenic drug that is closely related to ecstasy. So it's a party drug. It's not, you know, a, a... traditional performance enhancing it's not an enhancer and it's not something rick that i would guess would automatically or flukily land in a protein shake that you're taking after practice you're going to look for this kind of thing exactly yeah this is uh, you know a quote-unquote recreational drug it would fall under the category of marijuana which we have come to know from time to time that uh football players at least south of the border we hear many stories josh gordon would be a great example of guys ricky williams another one uh who would partake in pots to relieve pain stress uh, get in the zone uh do all that sort of stuff knowing full well that it's on the nfl's uh banned substance list as well and it is on the canadian football league's substance abuse list or banned substance list uh whether brandon banks knew that or not uh, he's not saying, uh, at least at this point, the team is not saying. Um, there's another twist to this story as well. We'll get into it, I'm sure, in a couple minutes. But the the time lapse between him being informed of his positive test and the announcement today was not a matter of hours or even a matter of a day. It was a two-week time frame. And that raises some question marks, alarm bells, red flags, certainly from a player and team perspective, and probably even from the CFLPA as well. We'll get to that in just a second, because I do want to get to yeah. that. Um, you talk about, though, about whether anyone knew this was on the banned substance list. Simone Lawrence tweeted out today that the CFLPA has to be better at, letting, at educating their players about drugs. i, I got to say, Rick, is it is it really a complicated thing to say, you know what, if you're playing professional sports, probably don't take ecstasy and you're going to be okay. I mean, it doesn't yeah, seem that complicated, really. That that would be a no-brainer, no doubt about like, it. Like, it's and not complicated. No, no. And uh, I understand, you know, we hear from time to time, Maria Sharapova, great example of a, of a high-profile athlete who recently failed a drug test because of a substance she claims she didn't know was added to the WTA, the Professional Women's Tennis Association's banned drug list. So from, you know, from time to time, we hear those athletes, whether you believe them or not. But she never they, said she didn't take it. She just said she yeah, didn't know that it was on the list. It was on the list, exactly. Oh, she 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 has readily admitted that she has taken it. Not only that, her, her, her parents have taken it, her grandparents have taken it. It's been in the Sharapova family for generations now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's part uh, of their secret recipe. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the home brew from uh, the old country. But, um, you know, it, we, we hear those stories. And again, whether you believe them or not, whether they knowingly took them or not, uh, this, this raises not only the question of, you know, whether or not the CFLPA is doing a good enough job of informing its players. Certainly when you hear some of the Ticats today, and Simone would be one, you kind of wonder, well, how are they not informed? And on the flip side, shouldn't they be doing their own due diligence as well? I mean, this is their career they're going to miss paychecks if they get suspended. Obviously, the reputation uh, gets somewhat tarnished. Uh, you know, there's a lot at stake. But And again, okay, Rick, and, and I agree with you on that. I absolutely agree. It should be on them. But it goes beyond that to me because, you know, if you're taking something in a supplement and you're not sure exactly you do that, this, to me, dropping or taking ecstasy doesn't seem to be a complicated issue. It's, it's, there are some things that you would say, okay, is this particular chemical that I'm taking in my protein shake legal or is it performance? In what world do you, as an athlete, take ecstasy and say, yeah, that's going to be fine? 
It just, I mean, it doesn't, this, this has got to be an absolute no-brainer. Without a doubt. I mean, there's really no gray area with, with this kind of drug at all. Um, you know, I, I'm assuming he knowingly took it. We don't know for a fact. He, he didn't, didn't deny it. Question. He didn't deny either. He didn't confirm either. Uh, we can only speculate that he knowingly did so. Um, and you would, you would have to know that this is something that is going to be, you know, caught by the CFLP or the, the CFL uh, drug testing officials because everyone is virtually tested. I mean, it happens to, to some players multiple times in a year. Uh, maybe he got away with it in the past. Maybe he didn't show up on a specific test. Maybe he thought he was in the clear and it was undetectable. Um, you know, those are all maybes, but at the end of the day, he was playing with fire. And, and if he knew that this was on the banned list or even in that gray area, uh, he knew what he was getting into. Should the Hamilton Tiger Cats... Remember, Brandon Banks was a guy who missed part of training camp, not because of any nefarious reasons, but while he was not here in camp, he there was a big poster. It was on social media that he was having his Brandon Banks annual pool bash. Um, now, this is this a guy the Tiger Cats should be starting to get concerned about? Well, I'll say no for the simple fact that there is um, there is a, a mood in the locker room. Certainly, Kent Austin expressed this as well. That you know this, you know Brandon Banks is a good guy. He made a mistake. Uh, yeah, he's had some trying times in his personal life, but there doesn't seem to be an underlying, uh, you know, he's a me guy or he's a um, a poop disturber, if I can put it that way. You know, he's a guy that uh, comes to work, does a fine job, is a responsible guy. Um, obviously, this is really throwing, uh, you know, that uh, you know to the curb and, and and kind of putting a lid on it because it doesn't really compute, but. They're saying all the right things, whether they're masking the issue or not. Um, he's had had some personal issues. You know, the story, uh, apart from the poster, was, you know, he had some, some family issues that he had to tie up before training camp. Uh, some had speculated it was the pool party thing. Some were suggesting that maybe he was holding up for, uh, you know, a better contract, but he had just resigned. So, you know, uh, I, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt in terms of trying to be a good guy. He just made yet another mistake. Well, and he says today, I mean, he was saying that he, he, he made a mistake. He told apparently the team that it was his mistake. There's yep. no denial. There's nothing that I can see in any of his comments today that say what Chris Colabello, for example, said. Of, oh, I have right. no idea how this got into my system. There's nothing that he said today that comes close to that. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, yeah, he didn't, he didn't come out and say, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I took something unknowingly and, and it just showed up. Um, he basically said, you know, this is my mistake. I'm taking responsibility. I'm disappointed. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm going to sit out the next two games. That's the penalty. And I'll have to, I'll have to live with it. And at this time of year, to me in a team sport, that to me is, you know, when I asked about whether the tie catch should be concerned, this is assuming that again, he misspoke today and didn't say anything else that it was an accident. This is the height of selfishness though. When you need to win, especially Friday, and you're a key component of this team, this is the height of selfishness to get yourself in this kind of trouble. Yeah, I would totally agree. I mean, whenever you put yourself ahead of a team in a team sport, uh, you know, that's uh, it's, uh, definitely a selfish act. And obviously he wasn't thinking about that at the time, uh, but it has really come back to bite him in the, in the, in the you-know-what. So we, we see in this, I think, Rick, the good and the bad in the CFL's new, and it is a new still, a new drug policy. The, mm-hmm. the good, obviously, it worked. It caught a guy and it worked. Yeah. I mean, that, not I mean, good for the Ticats, but I mean, we've seen that the policy will work. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I spoke with Peter Dykowski, um, you know, after practice today. He is 
um, on the CFLPA's executive uh, council or board, if you will, and one of the guys who helped establish or create this uh, drug testing policy in the Canadian Football League. He's a treasurer on the board, and he, he thinks the program works. He thinks that, yeah, there is some gray area because it does get tricky with some ingredients and certain supplements because you can't put everything on the list. Otherwise, you know, guys would be, you know, probably screaming foul at some of the supplements that are currently taking mm. that they, they believe shouldn't be on a banned list. So um, he's gone a long way, and the, and the CFL and the CFLPA have gone a long way to making it a more robust, as he called it, uh, drug policy plan. Um, again, it's, it's up to the league, the PA, and the players to come together to say, uh, you know, we, we got to know what's on the list. We certainly have to enforce, you know, this plan. I think the players do want to enforce that and do want to, you know, participate in that plan because it makes the game that much better and that much more um, cohesive in terms of, you know, fair play and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, whether or not you catch a superstar or you catch someone who's on the practice roster in the performance-enhancing substance policy, uh, you know, a guilty party is going to be a guilty party. And and I give credit to the CFL in this case. Um they named the guy who was caught, and he is a reasonably big name. He is a bit of he is a star in this league, and it wasn't a practice roster guy. It was a key player, and good for them that they didn't try and bury it. Yeah, and that you know that's part of the policy as well. Peter talked about that. That you know that has since changed. Where initially, when uh, you know a, a player got caught for using a banned substance, they were given a warning, and you know their name wasn't. Uh, publicized and said, hey, you know, look at this player uh, and, and see what he did. Now, yeah, you are named. You get a, a, a two-week ban on the first offense. It's a nine-week ban on the second offense. It's a one-year ban on the third offense. You do it for a fourth time, you're booted out of the league. So it is. it has some teeth to it. And certainly naming the player, I think, adds a little more bite to that uh, to that policy. Um, so I think it's, I think it's working for. Well, obviously it's working if, if they're if they're starting to catch guys, superstars or not. Uh, you know, this is a plus. Now, the bad side of it, that's the good side, that it works. It clearly, now we have evidence that this policy can work, and that's better than some leagues already. Uh, so, good for them. The bad is, and you alluded to this right off the top, it took two weeks. That it, Brendan Banks today was saying that he's known about this for two weeks. And I look at this and I go, all right, I don't know what the process is at this point that they went through, but if I'm the Ottawa Red Blacks, and last week you were playing against Hamilton in a game that had massive implications for playoffs, for home field, for buys, for everything else. If Brandon Banks had run back a kick against me and won the game for the Ticats, when he already had been alerted that he was suspended or should have been, was caught with drugs, there is something screwy about the fact that he could still have been playing and still been on the field. So either the policy has something in it that is not strong enough yet, or the way it was handled left the door open that competitive balance could have been seriously affected by the delay. Yeah, you know what, I, I haven't gotten a, an answer from the CFL on this, but the question has been posed, you know, why the two-week waiting period? Uh, you know, you've, you've gone through this testing program, you have a policy in place, you have a guilty party, what is the reason for the two-week delay? And as you said, if Banks made a game-winning play on, on uh, you know, against Ottawa last week, do they have a case to say, hey, this guy should have been out of the lineup? Um, and, and, and same for the, you know, the previous team that the Ticats faced. It, it comes down to, you know, why was that two weeks given? Was there a reason for it? Were they doing any sort of back? 
channeling or, or double checking, you would think that if he is told that he has tested positive, that the suspension should be enacted as soon as possible. Give him the two weeks and away you go. I'm not, I'm not sure why the waiting period it does not make sense. Because what would have happened if he had scored a winning touchdown? Ottawa would be screaming from the top yeah. of the hilltops and they would have had a case. Yeah, without a doubt, and, and you wouldn't you wouldn't blame them as all. You know, they're, they're looking at an individual who should be on the suspended list for that week because you know, as the policy states, if you test positive, you're suspended for two games. Is is there a you know a footnote in the policy to say that the league can determine which two weeks? I have no idea. Well, and it would have think of how bad this would have been for the league because you were on last night talking about the instant replay problems, and yeah. they announced that the Tie Cats got messed up by the instant replay. Now you've got the instant replay, you've got a, a black eye, and now you have this potentially could have happened with another one back to back. The league has got to find ways not to shoot itself in the foot. Well, let's call the hat trick, you know, uh, slashing Grey Cup ticket prices as well. We could have had. Let's go to there, yeah. Yeah, a trio of horrendous. Well, we do really have a trio of horrendous stories in one week for the Canadian Football League. At the wrong time, because you've got playoffs coming up. You're trying to sell a Grey Cup ticket. We got about two minutes here, Rick. But yeah, the Grey Cup tickets today, or yesterday night, I guess it was announced. uh, Tickets are not selling. Uh, It's at BMO Field. Maybe 10,000 sold in Toronto. Uh, kind of a dire situation. So they've slashed ticket prices. But as I understand it, if Rick Zampern had been one of the people who bought a ticket back when they went on sale, you're not getting any kind of discount or refund or anything. You're stuck with your expensive ticket. This just, unless I, unless something else has come up that you know that I don't know about that, what an absolute mess. Yeah, you know what? An update on that. I did hear from Michael Copeland earlier today who said that they are looking for ways to, A, provide a discount to those ticket holders who obviously have tickets to the game, B, move them to seats in a different part of the arena so they would get an upgrade in seats, or find a different way to compensate them if they are currently Toronto uh, organized season seat holders, maybe offer them a big discount on next year's season seats. So they are looking for ways Good. to compensate yeah, ticket holders, which uh, I think is a no-brainer. Oh, yeah. You so imagine if you went there and you'd paid 500 bucks and you realized the person oh, sitting man. next to you says they paid 100 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. The, the, the excuse that got me, though, and, you know, I don't buy it for an instant, is that, you know, this, is, this has been a busy sports landscape in Toronto with the World Cup of Hockey, the Raptors playoff run, the NBA All-Star Game, the Blue Jays playoff run, you know, uh, the, uh, the NHL draft hoopla around Austin Matthews, the Centennial Classic with the Maple Leafs and Detroit Red Wings on January 1st. To say that it's been a busy sports landscape in Toronto is very accurate. Why, then, is the marquee game of Canada's professional football league last on that list? That's a great that's a, point. That's a question for the CFL to answer. And there's another point to that, Rick, and that is you didn't know necessarily the Jays were going to be in the playoffs. You suspected they might, but you know what? People were paying three, $400 for not great seats at the Rogers Centre for a baseball game. If people really want to go to something, it seems very clearly they will find the money to go to that thing. Yeah. And and they don't seem to really want to go to the Grey Cup. No. Yeah. And and there's something wrong with that because we know it is a national championship yes. really when you when you look at it, one of the few in this country apart from, you know, things like the Man Cup and that. Um but when you look at the location, Southern Ontario, the Argonauts franchise, new stadium, it couldn't come at a worse time for this market for this franchise. And I'm not sure what the answer is. Just before I let you go, I mean, is this indicative of 
deep, deep problems with the CFL and Toronto, or do we look at this and say, the Argos stunk this year, there were all those things going on, you know, it's it's a one-off and no big deal. What, do you see it as a real problem, or do you see it as I'm not really sure? I think it's a real problem. I, I think if this team was, uh, you know, Calgary Stampeder-like, 13-1-1, one, one, would they have a few more people in the stands? Yeah, probably, but how much more is a few people? A couple thousand? I think the fact of the matter is that on the major sports and entertainment depth chart in Toronto, the Toronto Argonauts are behind Leafs, Raptors, Blue Jays, Toronto FC now, and a bunch of other things. Um, and it's it's a huge uphill battle. Something phenomenal is going to have to happen with the Argos for that franchise to be turned around. I'm not sure if it's one player like they had a few years ago with Ricky Ray or not. It might be um, a John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, Rocket Ishmael type of upheaval to get people talking about Argos football in Toronto again. Yeah, and finding John Candy to do that now is really tough. It's impossible. Rick Sanford, thanks for doing this. I appreciate the time. All right, thanks, Scott. Take care. Um, troubling stories. We, you know, we don't all mean to be. You don't mean to be all doom and gloom today, but um, we're going to pick it up when we get to the next hour. We're going to go to a break, but it, it's coming. The good news is coming. Stay with us. We're going to bring you from the depths of Blue Jay despair to the height of radio ecstasy. Actually, I shouldn't use the word ecstasy after that last one. Sorry, Brandon. Sorry, Ticat fans. Back after this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. This is a really interesting topic uh, that we're going to dive into right now because it's something that's been going on, it's been bandied about for a while, and yet it doesn't ever seem to get full traction. And I'm not really sure why not because, boy, it seems like it is something that we really could use. We have no problem. We have full support, well, not full support, but we have widespread support when we want to talk about sex ed in school. We say that's a really important thing for kids to know. They have to know about their sexual health. And yet money, while maybe not giving you a disease, money also is a huge part of our life that causes immense problems or can. So why are we not teaching kids about money when they're in school? Because that seems, again, like it's a real issue that deserves some time. Well, here to talk about this, someone who is passionate about this. In fact, she's written books for kids on this topic, trying to help them learn this stuff. Now, you probably know her better as the former CEO of Lakeport Breweries, a an entrepreneur, uh, a successful businesswoman, Teresa Cascioli. Uh, also, though, as I say, the author of M is for Money, which is a series of books on teaching your kids how to handle their money, and she joins me now. Teresa, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, thanks for having me. It is a fantastic topic to talk about, Scott. Well... It does seem to me, and I mean, I, I'm I'm lucky that my wife does all of our budgeting because I'm horrible at this. I would have been the perfect person that could have used a course in school on how to handle money because I am awful at it. But it does seem like it's kind of a no-brainer, doesn't it? it I think it is. I think that, um, you know, it's just as important as reading and writing and math. And so uh, studies have shown, and I advocate that the earlier... Uh, the better. And uh, so children, you know, in, in my books in particular, uh, ages five to nine, start to learn about reading and writing. And, and why not teach them about budgeting and a loan and saving and what is a bank? Uh, a lot of kids don't know that. And, and mm. they proceed right through high school and into college and then end up in debt. And especially now with the advent of 
you know, online apps, mobile apps. It's so easy to just click and spend mm-hmm. and uh, not really think that the bill is going to show up and, um, <laughs> you know, have I prioritized or, you know, are you going to be your child's ATM for the rest of their lives? So it is, for me, a no-brainer as well. But there are challenges in trying to move that agenda forward. And uh, the um, leader of financial literacy, we have a leader of financial literacy, Jane Rooney, um, several years ago established a strategy on educating and, and prioritizing financial literacy for Canadians of all ages. And November is Financial Literacy Month. So there's many different um, uh, conversations that will be had. There'll be, there'll be many different events where people can attend and learn about this. But fundamentally, it has to start in school because that's where kids spend a majority of their time. Well, first of all, I love the fact, and, and I, was, I should have used the name, but you've talked about financial literacy. That actually makes it sound more erudite and educated than saying how to handle your money. Because if you say it that way, people get their backs up, I think, because they're like, well, I, I know how to handle my money. Financial literacy... Well, now, okay, now it's something I can study, and maybe it sounds like it's got some some legs. And and I mean, I'm being, I'm not trying to be silly. I really mean that. If it sounds like something important, I think people will treat it as something important. I agree, and and the first step, I think, is you know, as always, train the trainers. So, mm. do we have uh, a a group of teachers, a group of individuals that are literate enough themselves? To teach the children. Great so question. You because have to start right from the beginning. And I created teaching guides, for example, and it, it seems it, it seems kind of ridiculous. You think, well, you're teaching five-year-olds about money. It should be fairly a, simp- a fairly simple thing to do, but it isn't. You have to actually think like a child would at that age and start right from the beginning and telling the story of what money is. And whether you have a debit machine, a credit card, or a debit card, a credit card, or whether you end up going virtual, it doesn't matter. You still need to understand the basic concept, which is before you spend, you should think about having the money or having access to the, to the money, and you have to prioritize. You can't have everything. You see children in stores now, and uh, at a very young age, they want it all. And, and if they persist, you know, Sometimes parents cave, you know. So I think just teaching them that they can't have everything they want right away. It's not possible uh, to do that, but you, you can at some point with a little bit of planning, a little bit of prioritizing. But if you train the trainers, if the teachers are taught how to teach the topics in a way that children don't feel like it's a lesson, that they feel it's a story or just a natural thing to do, that's how it will become. It will become a natural way of thinking rather than a lesson that's been, you know, thrown at them. But, Teresa, the problem is, and I, I don't think you're going to dispute this, but the problem is that you're absolutely right. You can't have everything. We all understand. I think we all deep down understand not a, that. Not all at once, anyway. But our culture, every commercial, everything you see, every ad, everything that you watch your neighbor, we are told nonstop, it's beaten into our head, not only should you want this, not only do you need this, but Teresa, you deserve this. And if you don't get this, there's something wrong with you. So teaching a lesson like this would be going completely counter to everything you're seeing outside of the classroom in your culture. Well, I think that you, in, in the end, you, you can have the things that you want in life, but you have to work hard. You have to make sacrifices. It isn't something that happens right away. When I had students working for me, 
uh, for many years, um, you know, hundreds of them, I, I would sort of reinforce that. You can get ahead in your career. You can have all the things you want to have, but you have to start at the bottom. And it does take time to work your way up. So, yes, you can have those things that are marketed, those those you know adventures that that are that are displayed everywhere that you you look but it's not that you can have them all right now you can't have them all at once and you can't have them when you're you know a teenager that doesn't have a job an education or you know uh resources so yes there there's always been advertisements that will tempt you perhaps now more so with social media and our our world but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be the grounding marks, a teacher, a parent, a banker, you know, that says, no, someday you might be able to do this, but here's why you can't do it all right now. And that is what's missing. It's not so much that you can't have those things. It's just a question of how you plan to get them, how you plan to work hard to achieve those things. And in the end, you can have those things, but just not all at once and, and not at, you know, certain ages you have to have the resources to do it. Well, exactly. And, and I mean, honestly, not everybody will be able to get everything they want, but you have to then have some sort of sense that, I, you know, I'm going to have to live without that particular toy. But how did we get here? Because this is what I'm trying to think. If I go back, my grandmother, who is now long past you know, would tell me stories about the depression and they would eat, you know, when she would take a piece of roast beef, she would never throw out the fat. She'd eat the fat because we ate that in the depression. You didn't want to get rid of it. And it seems like, and it's probably common sense, but between then and now we've changed so much. I don't think back then they would have needed a course like this because they understood the value of stuff. I don't know. Is well, it, is it grand, us? Your grandmother, Scott, probably spent some time with you telling you why and, and leading by example, right? She, yeah, oh, absolutely. Right? So there is a bit of a disconnect in that now mothers work, fathers work, there's extracurricular activities at schools. Is there really the time at home to have those conversations that you and I would have had with our parents and our grandparents? That nucleus has changed, time has changed, and now parents are busy and without the resources. So I went to the store to try to buy a book so that I could gift it to a child with some cash in it so that they would understand that it wasn't just paper. That's what spawned these books. There was nothing that existed. So without the tools to start the conversations, if you're a busy person, you know, and you're working and so on, there's, you have to prioritize what is it you really want to teach your children. You know, do you want to teach them about how to be safe at school? Do you want to teach What are those things? So without the resources, without the tools, the conversation becomes less and less. And so my books were the first of its kind in Canada. And that sounds kind of odd considering, you know, I wrote them just last year. Why wasn't there anything that existed? So first, it's establishing the resources. Second, it's establishing who it is that's going to teach the, the kids. Mm. And I think it's going to be a combination of conversations at home and a formal procedure in the curriculum that allows for teachers to be trained and introduce the topics in, a, in an organized and consistent way in the school system. You know, you say that, uh, and I use the example, you said you talk with your parents. I mean, we have these discussions and we've had some of this from home. And I started the co- whole conversation by saying, I am terrible at budgeting. I'm terrible at money. So even if you had the time for that now, though, Teresa, are we, are most parents 
qualified to actually be properly teaching our kids this. Even if we had the time, how, what percent of parents are really good with their money that they would be able to pass on the proper lessons to their kids? Well, first of all, they have to want to learn for themselves as well. So, yes, you're absolutely right. You can't teach something you don't know. So they have to want, they have to have the desire to make it a priority for themselves to learn a little bit about financial literacy. You don't have to go and, you know, run a bank, um, but you do have to know some basic fundamentals. And with the increased number of people in this country that live paycheck to paycheck, it's obvious that that isn't happening, right? So I think it's, it's easier if you go and get a loan and the bank parameters are low that they allow you to have all this credit or all this, you know, this debt, if you kind of squeeze that back a little bit and require people to actually understand what it is they're signing, to actually make sure they understand how to budget before you give them the money, loans, student loans, same thing. Well, guess what? Eh, You know, you don't really qualify for that loan, not necessarily because you don't have the income, but we know that based on what you've told us, you don't know how to manage your money, and you're a higher risk for us. So a little bit of mandatory training before credit cards get issued, before lines of credit get issued, before mortgages get issued, that would be fantastic because it forces people to take a step back and say, okay, do I really know how to manage this? It's not that you don't have good intentions, but do I really know what I'm doing? And it it requires them to seek assistance, ask questions. Access is easier when you go online and you can just buy, you know, designer shoes if you wanted to just with a credit card. And and, and if if a person doesn't have to think about paying it for the next 82 years, well, you know, what what incentive do they have, right? Everybody knows that you did very well in business. You made, you've been very successful financially. So you because of those circles that you walk in, you you know some rich people. Are are these kind of money issues exclusive to the everyday Joe, the struggling person living paycheck to paycheck, or are there some rich people who are really bad at this too? I think that, well, first of all, people with wealth mostly didn't go outside in their backyard with a basket and pick it off a tree. Right? <laughs> That's true. So most of us, I, I, I'm a very humble person and started you know, counting pennies. My, my parents were immigrants. And so, you know, they taught me the value of money because I'd go buy the milk. And like your grandmother, I would have to, I would get told, okay, we need the change because we have to pay the mortgage, right? So most people that have wealth, unless it's, you know, been passed along for generations, have had to work for it. It didn't come in some lottery um, just like that. So the people that I know worked hard to establish their level of wealth and they still monitor things every day and they still question and they still um, ensure that they are continuing to increase their capital or not lose money it's 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 also a job you know to have resources because you have to manage them so yes there's people that have money that aren't necessarily very good at it the only difference is that they can hire advisors to give them those lessons but if you take it right back, everybody can ask questions. Everybody can ask their banker for, for information with all the little modules and apps that are available now with banks. You have the ability, you can take responsibility to learn about how money works in your own circumstance. You don't have to have a ton of it, 
to, to ask the questions. But you have access to bankers. People have access to all these things. It's just easier to just sign sometimes on the dotted line and, and um, not really understand what the consequences are. Well, and I think that it, it, what you're just saying makes even more reason why we need a course like this, because honestly, I think a lot of people get to the point where they are embarrassed because they think it's a stupid question, so I don't want to ask, so I'll just go along with it. And if you had some background, so you actually had a at least a, a starting point, baseline, so you understood what certain words meant, or at right. least understood the general concept you could then make a decision. Am I about to ask a really dumb question that everybody should know that I should go ask someone else? Or is this a fair question to ask? I don't think there's any dumb questions, no, frankly. But but when people don't have any knowledge, right? well, I don't even want to go to the bank now. Correct. And so I think, you know, there's all there are online things you can look up. There's all kinds of resources. And again, because we have the leader of financial literacy, if you go go online, they have all the resources for all for all ages of of things that you could do to better educate yourself. In your case, you're fortunate. Your wife is doing everything. If there ever comes a time, Scott, then you would have to ask those questions as well. It might be wise for you to have those conversations. Oh, I know. Right I now, need to learn it. Right? I know. I need to learn it. But I think you know. Getting back to, is it important to have it in schools? Absolutely. I think that it's just as important as basic reading and writing and math. And if kids are not exposed to it at a young age, it's research has shown that the earlier you start them, the better it's ingrained in their natural day-to-day activities. So it doesn't come as a, you know, extraordinary thing for them to think about planning, for them to think about prioritizing, because they've already been taught at a young age that it's super important for them to know these things. So why isn't it in our schools? I mean, honestly, teachers are making a good living in this country. Every teacher that's in a school has a certain amount of money. Principals do, administrators do, board members do. Why is it so difficult to get everybody to buy in and say this should be done? Well, I can vouch for my own efforts, and I have spent months sending emails out. I mean, I did the books in in conjunction with the curriculum in Ontario, and actually pretty much across Canada. But trying to get their attention on this topic has been very difficult. And so the leader financial literacy's mandate will be to look at ways to continue to bring to highlight those financial topics in whatever means, including the schools. So there are so many things going on in the school system that it hasn't been made a priority. And so, you know, the mandate will continue to be to elevate that on the agendas of the government because as persistent as I've been, it's been very difficult. And I'm just now starting to navigate and figure out, with the assistance of others, how I can present these books in, in, as one tool. And I'm sure that there are many other people that would like to present tools like that for other groups as well, like high school and, as you said, middle school. Um, so it's, it's been a tough slug from the school board perspective, right? Because there isn't a formal process. Financial literacy isn't a separate topic. It's reading, writing, math. There's a little bit of, you know, the money things that happen in math classes, but there isn't a topic just for budgeting. And I think, or, or other topics like that, like what is a loan? How do you pay back a loan? How do you actually go out and take out a mortgage? What is that? How do you do it? And, you know, young people need to hear about this because eventually they're going to have to do these things. So Yeah, no, you're right. And, and I just, the only thing I wonder about with this, and it's a ridiculous, I think, position to be in, but I wonder if there's any hesitation to do this because we don't 
feel comfortable these days talking about money. We have people, we have a, a social, a, a financial, a fiscal divide between we like to talk about the rich and the poor. Everyone else is rich and we're poor and we don't like to talk about money so much it makes us uncomfortable and so let's just ignore it. Well, I think that, you know, as I said, I used to budget everything as a kid. I was, you know, and still am a spreadsheet person. You know, I, I don't like the unknown. I don't like getting into circumstances of any type that is completely unknown without sort of testing parameters, right? So I think it's, it's, we have to take some responsibility, even if there is a little bit of fear to asking the questions. We have to do that. And more importantly, we have to find the resources for our own children. If we can't teach them, there are resources out there that you can begin the conversations and at least have them ask the questions in school because then perhaps it also becomes something that needs to be highlighted. We all have to work together to resolve the dilemma because we're not going in a very good direction as far as you know, debt per capita within households in Canada. It is, uh, it is a really important topic that just for whatever reason seems to be... Um not getting the traction perhaps that it should, but uh, uh, if you have younger children, specifically, it's, it's probably a little um, little young for a high school kid, but if yeah, you have younger know. children, uh, Teresa's books are called M is for Money. You can find them around, and I've seen them, and they are really, really good for teaching younger kids, especially how to handle money, how to deal with money, the basics of money. Teresa, they, uh, they are, they're great books, and they're, I'm and sure they're very know, helpful. The website, uh, msformoney.ca, there's even free downloads. So, you know, activities that you can print off or have children look at, play with, so that you can, again, start the conversation. So you can buy the books on my website, obviously, and Indigo Chapters and Mastermind Toys. But more importantly, they're just tools for you to start the conversations where you actually have to take out you know, a $5 bill, or you have to, you have to actually engage with your child to move these agendas forward. Teresa Cascioli, really appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks. It was great. Thanks for having me. Uh, something to, uh, certainly uh, something to think about. If you actually know anything about money, I mean, how to spend it. We all know how to spend it. That's something none of us seem to have a problem with. We're all excellent at spending money. It's the making money, the saving money, the budgeting money, the planning around money. Well, we're not as strong in those departments. But if I have a $50 bill or $50, there is usually very little difficulty finding something to spend it on. It's, it's the rare person you're going to find who is not exceptional at spending. So we've got to work on the other stuff. I don't know why it's not in school, I'll be honest. I, it just, it seems to me such a blatantly obvious thing that every single person who goes out from school, whether they go into the workforce from high school or university, whatever, but we're all going to have to deal with money. Find me the one person on our, in our society who isn't going to have to handle money. They don't exist. And so if we all have to do it, why should we not understand how to do it without getting ourselves in trouble? It seems like an obvious one, but Apparently not obvious enough that it's in the schools yet. And again, we don't seem to have, governments don't seem to have a lot of problem saying we need to have deep, in-depth sex education because this is an important issue. And I'm not arguing that sex education of one kind or another is not important for our kids to learn. But I would actually argue that while almost everybody in the course of their life will deal with sex, everybody will deal with money 
And one of them, we already have programs in place for that are government-sponsored and organized and enforced, and one of them is kind of hit and miss. How does that make any sense? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There's a website called driving.ca, and they have posted what I thought was a hysterical list. Well, hysterical may be strong. A really funny list of some laws, some traffic laws that exist in different provinces across this country that you may or may not actually be aware exist. These are true. These are 100% true. If you have a pen and a piece of paper for, you know, to mark these down so that if you do go to one of these provinces, you know, uh, these are all things that could get you a ticket if you go certain places. Let me read through some of these because I think they're fascinating. I think they're hilarious. If you are in Ontario, right here in this great province of ours, you're driving along a country road and you happen to go by a farm, let's say, a fenced-in farm, and there's some horses galloping free. If you decide, hey, you know what would be really fun? I'm going to race the horses as they run down the fence. Well, that's a that's a fine. Believe it or not, racing animals is an $85 fine under Section 174. But here's the other part, the even weirder part about this. You also can get a fine if you frighten an animal. Now, I don't know what qualifies, to be honest with you, as frightening an animal. And the reason I... Um, the reason I say that, more than a couple times in my life, as we've been driving along, again, on a country road somewhere, and there's a bunch of cattle, have you ever stopped and, like, mooed at the cows to see if they'll moo back? But what happens if they're scared? Does that mean if one of them is startled that suddenly it's a fine because it's a skittish cow, it's got too much caffeine? I don't know. But if you frighten an animal, it's a ticket. Now, I don't know if frightening, if you run over an animal, is that frightening the animal? I don't know. Like, I'd be frightened if you were running over me, but I don't think running over an animal gets you a ticket. But if you intentionally frighten anything. So again, those of you who sees a bird, who see a bird on the road and speed up a little bit to try and scare the bird up, that is actually technically illegal. Be aware of that. Also in this province. If you have fuzzy dice, a dream catcher, any other object that is dangling down on the from your rear view mirror, if police believe that that in any way is impeding your view of the road, that's a ticket. And honestly, what fuzzy dice doesn't impede the road? So that, that also would be a ticket for you. Um, excessive noise, excessive fumes, excessive smoke coming out of the back of your car. Failing to lower your high beams, which I think probably is the law they put in to make sure, you you know, when you flick your lights so the people know there's a speed trap up ahead, they can probably nail you for that now. They can put it under the failure to lower your high beams. If you have an imported car from Britain that has a steering wheel on the right-hand side as opposed to the left, you have to have a sign on the car saying it's a right-hand drive car. I never knew that. I mean, we don't see a lot of them, but you have to have a sign that goes on the back of the car saying, by the way, I'm over on the other side. When you're passing a bicycle on the side of the road, bicycles riding along the sidewalk, you have to leave a meter or else you can be fined for that. Did you know that existed? Now, I don't know what happens if you leave a meter and then the bicycle veers a little closer to you because that's happened to me too, that all of a sudden they try and avoid. I've talked about this in the show. You're driving, you try to leave enough room for the bicycle without getting into the oncoming lane, but then they veer to avoid a sewer grate and almost end up in front of your car. I don't know what happens there. 
and unnecessarily slow driving. The senior citizen law. <laughs> if you if you drive exceptionally slowly, you can actually be fine. I had to go pick up my son at university today for something he was doing, and I got stuck on the road for a while on the highway behind someone who was doing about 65. That, why are there no police officers around? You speed, there's always a cop if you're going fast. You get someone who's barely can see over the top of the steering wheel going 65 on the highway. Good luck finding a cop anywhere for that one. Uh, To the surprise of nobody, if you decide that you're going to pull your friend on his skateboard with a rope or something behind your car or holding onto the back, that's, you know, do we need to tell you that one? See, when I was a kid, I didn't have a car back when I was a kid, obviously. I wasn't driving. A friend of mine, their family had a ski boat. And so in the fall, they had closed up the cottage for the winter. And we put a tow rope around the seat of my bicycle. And he was on his skateboard and I was on my bike. And I was towing around the neighborhood like until I went hard around a corner and he wasn't able to hold it. He went too wide and with the skateboard crashed into the curb and flew about 25 feet through the air. That was the end of that one. But if you do that in a car, now there you got a problem. Here's one that you may or may not have heard. Quebec and Ontario would be the exceptions to this, but if you go through a Tim Hortons drive-thru, let's say a McDonald's drive-thru, any kind of drive-thru, and you decide, hey, I'm on private property now. I can pick up my phone and I can text while I'm waiting to pick up my order through the drive-thru. Uh-uh-uh-uh. In Ontario and Quebec, that's okay. But elsewhere in Canada, if you are texting in your car while your car is on and you are going through a drive-thru, that can be a ticket. Did you know that? I did not know that. I figured that, okay, I'm in a drive-thru. I'm waiting for my burger. I can catch up on my texting while I'm waiting. Nope. You can get a ticket. Although I tell you what, I'm going to be seriously ticked off at the person in the window if they call the police because I'm texting and they decide to rat me out for that one. I'm buying food from you and you're turning me in. I'm not going anywhere. In PEI, did not know this. In PEI, if you pull out to pass a vehicle, so you're going into the oncoming lanes on the highway, when you pull out to overtake another vehicle, you have to honk first. I don't know if they ever actually enforce that. Um, but yeah, you have to honk and then hope that the person you're passing doesn't misconstrue as the story here says, doesn't misconstrue it as road rage and hunt you down and you end up in a situation because, you know, if you're passing someone, presumably the suggestion you're already making is, Hey, you're going too slow. Well, now you're pulling out and you're honking and you're passing. I don't know if that's going to work anymore in BC. If you drive in the left lane. And you're not actually passing someone. That's a fine. If you have too many people in Ontario, again, we're back in Ontario, too many people in the front seat of your pickup truck or your van or wherever else, crowding the driver, that's a fine. If you drive your vehicle on a closed road, so you got one of those road, you know, roads only open to local traffic, that can be a fine, or, or, If you are on the highway and you decide, you know what, I'm going the wrong direction and the next exit is 15 miles ahead and there's a, one of those pathways between the two sides of the road, because there's the gully in between, but you know where the police always hide with the speed traps? If you pull into one of those to make a U-turn, oh, 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 don't do that. That is big time against the law. Big fine for that one. And in Quebec, if you leave a child under seven in a vehicle for any reason, 
while you get out. While the child is asleep in the back seat. Not, not just the child, but if the child is asleep, that is a violation of the highway safety code. Now, what is unclear about this one? If I pull in to get gas and I stop my car and I get out to fill up the tank and my child is asleep in the back seat, so I am not in my vehicle, do I have to wake up the child before I pump the gas? Or can I let them sleep while I'm standing there pumping the gas? Because I'm actually out of the car and the car is stopped and turned off. Unclear about that one. I don't know whether that one, but anyway, the message from all this, don't moo at cows. Don't drag your son or daughter or sister or brother on a skateboard behind your car. Don't have a loud car and don't drive too slowly. That would be the short form of, of this. I would think, especially the don't drive too slowly part as much as everybody hates it. When we see people really speeding, nothing is more annoying than someone going really, really below the speed limit. You know what also is not included in here? The law that motorcyclists seem to believe exists. That is, they can travel at whatever speed they want to because there is no speed limit for motorcyclists. I've never understood this. I have, I have seen more motorcyclists go faster than any car I've ever seen weaving in and out. You're driving along and all of a sudden you just barely hear them. And they're going 180 kilometers an hour with their head down, hunched over their motorcycle. Going, you know, if you make one little mistake, you're dead. Motorcycle, is it just me? Or do you see a ton of motorcyclists who go way faster than anyone else with the least amount of protection? Motorcyclists, apparently, when you get your motorcycle, they apparently tell you, oh, and don't worry about the speedometer. It doesn't matter. No speed for motorcycles. Do whatever you want. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Stack TV.